0: Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large, I'm Leonard Lopate. After the 2016 election results were in, Franklin Graham, the son of Billy Graham and an evangelical advisor to Donald Trump said that God's hand intervened. And Sarah Huckabee Sanders said that God wanted Trump to become president. As journalist Catherine Stewart notes in her latest book, The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, the election may mark a victory for decades of work by a segment of religious activists to extend their political influence in all three branches of government and to break down the separation of church and state. She's uh, written a history and discusses The Debates Over the Role of Religion in Government and the Growth of of Christian Nationalism, that's been published by Bloomsbury. I'm very pleased that it brings Catherine Stewart to our show now. Hello.
1: Hi, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me back.
0: What reason did they give for claiming that God preferred Trump?
1: You know, I think a lot of people marvel at how uh, Christian nationalists put up with uh, many of uh, Trump's obvious character flaws. And some people think that it's just transactional relationship. They think that Trump is going to enact economic policies favorable to their pocketbooks or put in justices favorable to their uh, positions in the culture wars. But there's something more than that. I think that Uh, that kind of misreads the relationship between Trump and his followers. Religious nationalism almost always favors a fierce leader. It doesn't want someone who follows the rules. Uh, It wants someone who breaks the rules and twists arms as long as those arms belong to the dreaded enemy. So there's a kind of relationship between authoritarianism and uh, this kind of extreme religious conservatism that we're seeing today.
0: Yeah, I've seen some of them cite... uh, biblical texts uh, about uh, bad people who uh, wound up doing good things.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, now, they compare him to leaders like uh, King Cyrus and um, uh, biblical figures like Cyrus and King David and uh, you know, say that he's been cast as an imperfect vessel whom God chose to enact his will and restore America to its supposedly Judeo-Christian roots
0: was he known to be religious before he decided to run in 2015 uh, and uh, do we he, know whether there is he's any he, he's at all religious now
1: you know I, I, I don't think he had any sort of history of religiosity he couldn't even s- cite when he was speaking to liberty he couldn't cite uh, the, his favorite biblical texts uh, correctly but the alliance between trump and uh, ultra-conservative religious leaders today is really characteristic of other forms of religious nationalism around the world. I think if you look at leaders in other countries, look, there are many differences among different countries, but if you look at a leader like um, Viktor Orban in Hungary or Vladimir Putin in Russia or Erdogan in Turkey, they'll bind themselves very tightly to religious conservatives in their countries in order to solidify an authoritarian form of political power and we rightly recognize that as a kind of religious nationalism Now, trump is doing this because that movement you know long preceded trump uh, by decades and um they've managed to get a lock on a block of voters and trump knew he could not win without their support so he made a deal with them and he at public appearances like Marches for Life or Road to Majority Conferences or Values Voters Conferences, the type of events that I attend in my reporting, he is constantly reminding uh, rank and file that he's giving them everything they asked for and, and maybe even more.
0: Now, we've had other presidents who uh, were religious. Uh, Eisenhower often began cabinet meetings with a prayer. And Jimmy Carter, um, who... Is, is both a Democrat and a born-again Christian. Uh, did uh, the evangelicals or the, uh, the people, the, the predecessors to the, the people here, uh, admire them for that, or was that irrelevant at the time?
1: Well, you know, you know that American Christianity is incredibly diverse, and most American Christians believe that uh, Christianity has something to do with being kind to others. Particularly the poor and vulnerable, and there is also a large movement of religious progressives uh, and religious evangelical um, sorry evangelical progressives that rejects the politics of conquest and division that this movement represents. But um, you know, if you think that this kind of um, religious nationalism is about helping the poor, it's really a misunderstanding of this movement's deep intellectual and uh, theological roots. Uh, that are in opposition to, say, civil rights, the New Deal. Um, the movement uh, encompasses a you know a wide range of policy positions, not just ab- you know abortion, same-sex marriage, and the like, but also they embrace right-wing economic policy that has uh, led, as a consequence, to the hollowing out of the social safety net and other types of um, policies. So it, it is really one variety uh, of religion in our country, and a kind of extreme one.
0: Many people link it to evangelicalism, but you point out that there are plenty of evangelicals who don't go along with this. Uh, what about the Tea Party? Is there any link there? To
1: the Tea Party? Well, yeah.
0: the tea many, the, of the, you know, many of the things they're calling for are similar.
1: That's indeed the Tea Party. uh, On its face, focused on sort of uh, right-wing economic uh, policy, and this movement has really uh, tied itself to a kind of authoritarian, sorry, libertarian wing of the Republican Party, um, a sort of pro-corporate, economic conservative wing of the uh, Republican Party. Um, So it's um, that's a really big part of their sort of wider ideology when you're when the leaders are talking to the rank and file or when they're talking to say conservative leaning pastors about the issues they should talk to about their congregations in turn to in order to turn out the vote it's all abortion all the time you know abortion is the beginning and the end but when the leaders are talking to one another in the forums that they share and when they're talking to their some of their plutocratic funders and um, certainly to their um, political allies, they really talk a lot about right-wing economic policy. There's been a, an alliance with uh, right-wing economic, um, uh, sort of, uh, with sort of right-wing economic policy and sort of this type of religious hyper-conservatism for very ma- many, many years.
0: Is that where they get uh, much of their funding?
1: They do. The the for people like the Koch brothers and such. Pardon?
0: For people like the Koch brothers or the Koch brother now? or
1: The Koch brothers fund a lot of the right-wing economic uh, policy institutes and, and um, think tanks that work closely with Christian nationalists, um, thinking about places like the Heartland uh, Institute or the Mackinac Center. Um, some of these derive their funding from families like Koch uh, that are really primarily concerned with right-wing economic policy but there's like a strategic alliance between the two camps um and uh so you know that that's one place where the um religious nationalists get their funding they get it from a certain subsection of america's plutocratic class even if they they are not
0: religious themselves
1: Many of them are religious, like if you look at the DeVos and Prince families, um, they're also the Green family, family of Stephen Green, the sort of Hobby Lobby family. They're motivated, very strongly motivated by um, religious orthodoxy, but they are also as committed to right-wing positions in economic policy as they are to biblical inerrancy as they they, uh, see it. They, you know, advocate for... Minimal taxation for the rich. Uh, they're against progressive taxes, uh, minimal workers' rights. And many of the leading theologians of the movement, uh, in turn, advocate for those types of positions.
0: And you uh, argue in your book that the Christian nationalist movement is, quote, not a social or cultural movement anymore. If it ever was, it is a political movement and its ultimate goal is power. And you begin your book with the story of an older couple trying to set up a Bible club at your daughter's public school in Southern California. What were they hoping to achieve?
1: Well, they were trying to set up something called a Good News Club in our public elementary school. Now, Good News Clubs are designed to convert children in their very earliest years of learning to a deeply fundamentalist form of evangelical Christianity, and they do this in public schools, not in churches or in private homes or even in... You know, they do a little bit in public parks, but their real focus is public elementary schools. They're talking K through 5 or K through 6. So they confuse little children into thinking that their public school supports and endorses this form of religion. And they encourage children attending the clubs to proselytize their classmates and recruit their classmates at school. So good news clubs that I attended in my research, the children were offered points or prizes or candy recruiting their peers to the club. Now, my kids at that age they they would do anything for a cupcake and they believed in the tooth fairy. So, if something somebody is telling them something at school, they think it must be true. And this is a message they were communicating to their classmates.
0: But I thought that well, was illegal. Uh
1: Exactly. It seemed wildly school. inappropriate for me that this should be happening in America's public schools. And apparently there are thousands of them in public elementary schools around the country, but You know, I also at first thought this was a kind of relic of the American past, and I was wrong about that. I mean, the more I learned about these clubs and the movement behind them, the more concerned I became. I was stunned by the movement's legal sophistication, determination, its coherence, and high level of strategic thinking. And that's how I kind of got interested in this topic.
0: Yeah, your first book— Your previous book was the Good News Club about this, and then that led you to a broader investigation into the political efforts of the evangelicals, because did you see uh, the the Good News Club as actually a political club rather than a religious club?
1: You know, I went to, when I was doing my research, I went to their national convention in Talladega, Alabama. Can anyone attend? I I attended. Yeah, I signed up like everybody else, Mm -hmm. used my real name. They weren't
0: suspicious of you?
1: I mean, I don't think people knew why I was there necessarily or, um, you know, I just allowed people to make assumptions. When when people would ask me why I was there, I would say, I'm just really interested in the work that you do because that's where it was at at the time. And, um, you know, I figured if they have a right to come to my kids' public school, which I support with my tax dollars, I have a right to pay my fee like everybody else and go to their national convention. I wasn't hiding anything. So um, I went, and I attended, and I was kind of shocked. I was so naive, I have to say. I was really shocked by the political content that I heard at the uh, convention. One of the main speakers, he said, they called our public schools mission fields, and they called our children the harvest. And one of the speakers said, knock down all doors, all barriers to all, I can't remember the number, like 75,000 public schools, public elementary schools in America, and take the gospel to this open mission field now, not later, now. I just was astonished by that. So let me tell you about this other speaker, this guy named Charles Ware. He wrote a book, and he was, you know, one of the featured speakers. He's one of the keynoters, and he wrote a book in which he compared marriage between Christian and non-Christian couples. He called it interracial marriage, and he (laughs) said it should be condemned And this is a guy who was their featured speaker, you know, invited to speak here. And he is being, you know, this is a movement that's putting their clubs in thousands of public elementary schools around the country. And I thought this was astonishing.
0: It's interesting he used the phrase uh, 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 interracial because you point out that uh, this is, although this is not a uh, specifically white movement, it is implicitly white they're, they they are trying to recruit uh, African American pastors, aren't they, or African American clergy?
1: Yeah, it's true. You know, the movement is often characterized as a white movement, and I think for a lot of the people who are members of the movement, it's implicitly white rather than explicitly white. They sort of they're tying the they're tied to the idea of specific um, religious and also cultural identities. And they're trying to recover a nation that was once supposedly, in their minds, both Christian and white. Um, but you know, leaders of the un- movement see that um, they know the demographic future isn't uh, isn't the same as the demographic past, and it can't be eth- ethnically homogenous, or they're going to you know lose the percentage of voters that they want. So in recent years, their outreach efforts have sought to include some conservative and Latino black pastors and other types of figures. But number one, they're papering over the ways in which um, conservative evangelicalism and racism reinforce one another. And number two, these pastors of color are being enlisted to fight culture wars that are driving support for a political party that has made voter suppression and race-based gerrymandering a strategic imperative.
0: I'm speaking with Catherine Stewart, uh, her latest book, The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, published by Bloomsbury. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM. Have you found that the scope of their influence is broader than you had previously thought?
1: Yes. Unfortunately, I think that the scope of the movement is a lot wider than most people think. I think that, um, I mean, let's just look at the courts. A lot of the movement derives its strategic direction from some of the right-wing legal advocacy groups, like the Alliance Defending Freedom, um, and uh, the, there's or, there are organizations like the Federalist Society, which plays an outsized role in uh, grooming and promoting right-wing candidates for the courts. I looked it up the other day. Trump has appointed uh, 190 Two um, uh, federal judges. That is just over 22% of the judiciary. I mean, this uh, is going to put a stamp on the courts for a generation.
0: And Mitch McConnell just recently uh, asked uh, conservative judges who are near retirement age to retire now so that they can be replaced with more conservative judges. <laughs> it's,
1: so that's really something, isn't it? Think just think about what how he blocked all those uh, Obama uh, nominees. In fact, I was at a Values Voters conference. Um, maybe it was not the last one, but the one before. And he stood up. He said, "The very best thing I did is block, you know, Obama from appointing Merrick Garland to the Supreme Court."
0: Mm. But uh, did the Christian nationalists approve of Neil Gorsuch and, and Brett Kavanaugh?
1: Of course, they—they they, um, these these are you know Federalist Society picks, and you know, I think a lot of people don't realize how much money is spent on trying to promote these judges, these um, uh, these nominees. There, there was a really fantastic piece in the Washington Post um, about a year ago about Leonard Leo, who's the head of the Federalist Society, and the many different organizations that he's involved with. And the figures, the, the, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars involved in this type of thing, it's, it's, it's staggering, the amount of money that's spent on sort of promoting right-wing candidates to the courts.
0: Does the religious right seek exclusive power? Are they trying to shut out those who don't share their views?
1: I don't think the movement has much respect for the two-party system or even democracy itself.
0: Well, uh, what sense did you get of why so many evangelical Americans find this movement appealing?
1: That's a really interesting question. I mean, I think religion offers so much to so many. I think a lot of people—well, first let's distinguish between the leaders and the followers of the movement. The the leaders may be—you know, they have a much broader strategy, but, you know, for the followers, a lot of them are drawn to religion, as I said, for many— really lovely and honorable reasons. People, you know, want to celebrate their love of God in Scripture. They want to find meaning in their their lives. They're seeking certainty in a deeply uncertain world. I mean, you know, in the face of, you know, climate uncertainty, uh, the vast pace of technological change, I think... Well, how do they
0: explain coronavirus?
1: uh, Well, we can get into that soon, because... I actually think the movement bears a lot of responsibility for the uh, incompetence of our national response to the current pandemic, um, and I'd love to get into that if you we don't mind. Do but a- like, any time, sure. Well, okay. So, well, first I just want to finish up my last thought and say that a lot of folks who are drawn to the movement, you know, they're really told by their pastors you need to vote for life, you know, uppercase life. You need to vote for saving the babies. In fact, I was at this one event um uh, where this pastor was being told by there were dozens of pastors being you know, told by leaders of the movement when your congregants ask you about financial issues, you gotta tell them, you know, what's more important? Talking about the minimum wage or life and sort of so they're basically told that abortion is the issue and so then people will turn out to you know vote to so you know quote unquote save the babies and they end up voting into power these hard right politicians that the movement favors who will enact hard right economic policies you know environmental degradation so that sort of leads into the issue that we're dealing with today which is the response to the current pandemic
0: well, you would think I mean, that if they are so pro-life, they would in some ways be pro-Bernie Sanders because of his medical plan. Or did they not consider that aspect of, uh, of medicine a, a matter of life?
1: You know, I think first and foremost, this movement promotes an anti-science culture that rejects the evidence of science, rejects the evidence certainly of social science if you want to um, – you think about, you know, how to respond to pandemics or various types of social ills. They reject expertise. They reject critical thinking. And I think this has obviously contributed to our inability to address the crisis in an evidence-based fashion. Uh,
0: they, uh, so, so their, their uh, rejection of science to some degree also uh, in many cases because they reject the concept of evolution, uh, right. And, uh, and that leads them to too. take some positions that you would think that uh, they that are antithetical to what they believe.
1: That's absolutely true. I mean, I think it's also worth noting that in the Trump years, we've seen a breakdown of formal expertise and an increasing premium paid for political loyalty and ideological conformity. I mean, if you think about the folks surrounding Pence, they're not put there heading up different departments because they have expertise in environmental environmentalism or necessarily expertise in education, thinking about Betsy DeVos. I mean, this power has been handed over to these advisors whose motivations are guided by things like religious ideology and pursuit of power and also for their demonstrated loyalty to Trump. And have very little interest in, you know, to do with serving the wider public. So, this is a, a a real concern when you're facing a crisis of the of the one we're facing right now.
0: Polls indicate that about 43 percent of Americans approve of Donald Trump's what he's been doing. Um, do we have any sense of uh, how much of an overlap there is with Christian nationalists? By the way, that that 43 percent is a five percent dip because of the way the president handled the uh, coronavirus crisis
1: um yeah well when you talk about it was demographics 48. sorry
0: it was 48 until recently 48 until recently that's
1: really interesting yeah you know i was at another one of these conferences and ralph reed who's another one of the leaders of the movement he said it doesn't matter what percentage of the of the what share of the public we have our demographic is declining all that matters is who turns out on election days, I think the movement punches above its political weight because it really gets people to vote in disproportionate numbers. Now, not all Americans who support Trump are part of the movement, of course, but the movement has contributed to a kind of right-wing um, propaganda media sphere in which there is a kind of um, you know, echo chamber of applause and adulation for President Trump.
0: You say that their numbers are declining. Uh number of Americans who say they don't associate with any religion has been uh, rising over the past 30 years. And we have people like Ron, Ron Reagan uh, appearing on TV ads promoting atheism. Uh, so does the religious right think it can win a majority support at the ballot box?
1: You can win if you can get people to vote in disproportionate numbers. It's almost easier to unite a more... Um, a smaller group around a more radical core than it is to unite a divided sort of rest of everybody else hmm. who's, you know, who o- the only thing they really have in common is their opposition to it. So, you know, it's interesting. There's a, a fellow named George Barna. He's a right-wing evangelical poster, a pollster, not poster, hmm. pollster with L's. And he, um, he wrote a book called The Day Christians Changed America. And he noted that, uh, the movement consists of this very highly political act, politically active and engaged core that vote at ninety percent. Ninety percent of a particular group within this movement, he, they, he calls them um, sage cons, or spiritually active, electorally engaged, um, uh, and he he says that they vote voted about ninety percent. Not only that, they get out there and they knock on the doors, they um, give money to you know. Uh, folks to sort of get out the vote efforts they're um they're they're making phone calls and um and so all that really matters is who turns out on election day
0: critics of conservative tactics have raised concerns about gerrymandering voter suppression voter disenfranchisement uh perhaps even uh tinkering with the vote uh, um, as ha- we saw in georgia um has the religious right been using these tactics? Is it endorsing those tactics?
1: Well, I see them using the tools of democracy to dismantle democracy, and whether you know uh, dirty tricks are being employed or not, it's almost like the tools that they have at their disposal and the way that they're using them are pretty stunning. I'm thinking about the data strategy. Um, there are these uh, right-wing data initiatives that are targeting. voters in enormous numbers. One of them is called United in Purpose. It's head by a fellow named Bill Dallas. And in one of the interviews that he gave to um, a Christian radio network, he said, we have 200 million voter, uh, uh, we have data for 200 million American voters, and we know it gets people to turn out to vote one way and makes them not vote at all. So what they'll do is they'll they have all these, you know, voter all this voter data information, and they'll assign points to different voters depending on whether they might have signed an anti-abortion uh, ballot at some point, or joined, a, you know, an anti-marriage uh, um, equality, you know, signed one of those types of things, and whether even if they have an interest in NASCAR or hunting or fishing. So they they do this kind of thing, and they if they if a person reached reaches six hundred points. They will target messages for that person to try to get them to register to vote and and, and turn out the vote that way. You mentioned, and that's just one the, of the many initiatives.
0: You mentioned the uh, uh, tendency toward autocratic things. Uh, that many have uh, argued that Donald Trump has autocratic tendencies. But haven't both Republican and Democratic administrations had a long history of supporting autocrats like the Shah? of Iran, Pinochet, in Chile. Would Christian nationalists take that kind of support to a new level?
1: I think absolutely. I mean, again, you know, one thing that autocratic governments have is a hostility of democracy, often in alliance with religious, uh, cons- uh, religious ultra-conservatism. I think Americans have long told ourselves a story about our exceptionalism, and we sometimes point to our religiosity as a part of that story, but, in fact, our religious nationalism is really one of the least exceptional things about America.
0: Isn't xenophobia a common theme among nationalists?
1: You know, religious nationalism promotes a sort of I- idea of the insider versus the outsider, the pure and the impure. And I think that that's really important to the movement. You know, the narr- the narratives that the movement Tells the biggest lie, of course, is that we're founded as a so-called Christian nation. It's very politically important in terms of motivating their supporters, because it it's one of the essential ways ways to convince them that they are the real Americans, the true Americans, and their enemies are hostile outsiders. But you know, they're not just talking about people outside of America; they're also talking about people inside America. So they're you know, if you look at a, somebody like Bill Barr. You know, for instance, he has basically told the story where secularists, as he called them, are out ransacking everything that's holy and good and are, are in fact, a kind of internal enemy. And he's speaking about Americans who may not happen to share his religious views.
0: it's kind at, of
1: indicating that they are an enemy.
0: In a speech at Notre Dame, uh, William Barr warned of, quote, the Organized Destruction of Religion and Traditional Values. Um, so would you call him a uh, religious nationalist?
1: I would. And an interesting thing about Barr is that he's is not uh, an evangelical. He's a Catholic. And obviously that shows that... Um, you know, and he's as important to the movement as the evangelicals, and this shows a sort of diversity of the movement in terms of religion. They're so not united by particular sort of th- distinctions of theology, but more by political vision. Um, a second important thing, I think it's really important with Barr, is that he is not a representative Catholic. In fact, he stands for an extreme form, an extraordinary form of of, of that religion. So it brings up the point that people in the movement are represent are extreme in their religion and not representative of their religion.
0: You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM.
1: I won't lose a friend by heeding a call For what is a friend who'd want you to fall Others find pleasure in things I despise I like the Christian life My buddy shunned me Since I've turned to Jesus I still love them. They burden my heart. I'll try
0: to. Our guest on Leonard Lopit at Large today is uh, Catherine Stewart. Her book, The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, is published by Bloomsbury. Uh, Now, what what kind of America do they imagine? What future do Christian nationalists imagine in their ideal U.S. and and for the role of government?
1: Well, you know, the movement emphasizes biblical literar- literalism, A sort of the idea of America as an authentically Christian nation rooted in hierarchies that are ordained by the Bible. Um, they talk about America as a so-called Christian nation, uh, defining, of course, the religion as they define it. So they Jews, have,
0: Muslims, Buddhists, uh, they are all really just interlopers?
1: Well, the, yes, it's a kind of like they're here by invitation only, uh, but not necessarily the sort of authentic am- Americans. They, well, what um, about Native Americans? <laughs> <They> have, <laughs> they have, they have, I don't hear very aren't much talk about are Christians here by invitation only? <laughs> yeah, apparently. <laughs>
0: Native Americans have, uh, have religions as well, at least the ones who weren't converted. Um, some economic and philosophical conservatives endorse what they call a night watchman state, where the government does little more than provide defense, policing, and adjudication of disputes, but uh, would not have provide public schools, uh, there'd be no Social Security, and things like that. Um, is that something religious nationalists support?
1: Well, I think they like government when it does what they want it to do, and they don't like government when it doesn't what they want them to do. So there's a longstanding hostility to public education in this movement. They see public you know, education as sort of failing to conform their views, so therefore they're hostile to it. I can promise you if public schools were filled with conservative evangelical um, Uh, indoctrination, they'd be thrilled with the public schools. In fact, many of them, this is sort of a a vision that they'd like to work toward. It was Jerry Falwell himself who said, I hope to see the day when there are no more public schools. Christians will have taken them over, um, and and churches will have taken them over, and Christians will be running them. But I can promise you in this vision of his, there was a lot of public funding of those uh, Mm -hmm. churches taking over the public schools. And if you look at how um, the movement is trying to fund private religious schools through vouchers. You can see the effort to kind of direct the flow of public funds to religious institutions.
0: You're right that today's Christian nationalists, quote, talk a good game about respecting the Constitution and America's founders, but at bottom, they prefer autocrats to Democrats. So mm-hmm. uh, are you saying, in effect, that they really oppose democracy?
1: I think it's a profoundly anti-democratic movement. And if you look at some of the um, the behavior of a leader like Trump, you know, uh, I, I don't know where to begin. And yet he receives adulation and, and support of this movement, uncompromised, that uh, this is, a, a, I think, Exhibit A and in, in what they're after. Paula White, who's in his administration, said, it is God that raises up a king. They're always talking about kings and kinging, and uh, they seem to have a kind of um, fetish for the monarchy in a way. And the thing about kings is that they don't have to follow the rules. Um, they are the law unto themselves.
0: Are there Christian nationalist voices in Congress or in the Supreme Court? Uh, Mitch McConnell, Devin Nunes, Lindsey Graham, or- W- could they be considered Christian nationalists or a- allies?
1: I mean, many people might not think of themselves as Christian nationalists themselves, but the movement, let's remember, it's a really decentralized movement. It uh, consists of, it's ve- political movements are always very complicated, and this one is, I think, more complicated than most. It consists of a variety of sort of for- for-profit, non-profit organizations, legal advocacy groups, Uh, policy groups, um, and it works sort of um, with a kind of almost decentralized leaders. Some of them have connections with one another and share positions in different organizations. Many of them operate out of the spotlight, um, but it works almost like a a machine. And so there are a lot of politicians out there who might not identify themselves as Christian nationalists, so some of them will just simply call themselves conservative Christians, but they operate hand-in-glove, to help sort of build up that machinery. And so I wrote my book to sort of do a deep dive into the workings of that machinery and to try to expose, you know, lay out much, as much of it as I possibly could.
0: Does the movement have links to other groups like white nationalists and anti-Semitic movements, the KKK, for example, and anti-immigrant groups?
1: There are, um, I think if you look at Venn diagrams, there's some overlap, but not entirely overlap. I think there are people on the very extreme end of the Christian nationalist movement who are like neo-Confederates and still (laughs) talking about the Confederacy and segregation and things like that, but they are definitely not representative of the movement. In fact, some of the leaders are making uh, real efforts to engage in racial reconciliation uh, initiatives, but again, I think they are papering over the ways in which the movement tends to reinforce that sense of outsider versus insider, pure and impure. I mean, it's really apparent to me when you hear some of the speakers, how they speak about secularists or atheists or the LGBT population, for instance, LGBT Americans. It's like the other groups have taken over the role of, um, of you know, um you know, the, though, the, those are the ones to be reviled, where in a, in a previous era, pure and impure was defined more, by, more explicitly by race.
0: We've been talking mostly about uh, this as a national issue, but uh, do they have um, really more impact in state
1: houses? There's a lot of impact on the state houses, and I want to tell you about one initiative called Project Blitz. So, This is only one piece of the movement. It's a legislative initiative. It works a little bit like the American Legislative Exchange Council. It's called Project Blitz. They craft centrally, you know, craft legislation intended to chip away at the separation of church and state, and then they flood this legislation uh, in identical or near-identical forms through different states. And are we seeing it uh, succeed in some states? Oh, absolutely. So, there are different levels of um, they've, that they have identified strategically. The authors of Project Blitz. So, the first level is sort of the easiest stuff to pass, like in God We Trust bills. We want to put in God We Trust signs in every public school classroom, or in God We Trust signs in every police car, or in every state house or every courthouse, local courthouse. And in many of these states, you have these uh, bills passing because. As the authors of the Project Bliss have identified, these bills are often easier to pass. They're harder to oppose because people think, well, it's just in God we trust. It's been the national motto since the 50s. What does it matter? One nation
0: under God in our Pledge of Allegiance.
1: Well, it used to be actually e pluribus unum. That was the unofficial motto for many years, out of many, one. But that, of course, is a motto that affirms the pluralism that actually reflects what we have in our country, but this, you know, movement of course isn't uh, has no respect for that pluralism. You detail. So they're trying to. So this is actually working in a lot of states.
0: You detail the efforts of of some to target the highest levels of government, uh, like Ralph Drullinger. Uh mm-hmm. He's one of a line of Christian nationalists in the U.S., including James Dobson and and Ralph Reed, who you mentioned earlier, and he's written. Good laws, I'm quoting, are informed by biblical morality and above all, personal morality. What are the the key tenets of biblical morality as he sees them, and how does personal liberty connect to biblical morality?
1: You know, the expansiveness of Drollinger's positions on domestic, economic, and foreign policy are really stunning. And it hits home the fact that this is, a political movement and not just about the culture wars and not just about being kind to others and things like that. So in his view, social welfare programs have no basis in scripture. You know, he says, nowhere does God institute command the institutions of government or commerce to fully support those with genuine needs. He also makes clear that God believes in deregulation, um, a flat tax, he thinks flat tax is biblical rather than progressive income taxes.
0: Where does he, he find li- that in the Bible?
1: <laughs> <A flat laughs> you got look at his Bible study guides. They're incredible. He also talks, "Oh, it's really kind of horrifying." And I put this in my book, one Bible study guide where he actually thinks that it's, you know, a, you know, biblically important for parents to beat their children mm-hmm. and to uh, physically um uh, to engage in what he calls discipline in a physical way—it's—it's it's really awful. I don't have the uh, study guide in front of me, but um, it's probably still online. Most of his Bible study guides are online. I mean, he um, advocates for an incredibly authoritarian form of religion. He also, you know, doesn't think that you know women should be in positions of power over men at home or at church. So he'll say he gave uh, an interview to DeWelt, it's like a German newspaper, and he said, well, it might not be what I believe, but oh gosh, it's sort of what what God wants. So, uh, you know, this hits home the fact that this is really not just about the way most American Christians understand Christianity. This is not about being kind to others and helping the poor. It's really about um, uh, a kind of, much a different kind of what they what they would call a biblical worldview. Now, there are other leaders of the movement who are, have very similar positions. I'm thinking about someone like um, David Barton, who I refer to as the Wears Waldo of the Christian Nationalist Movement because he sits on the board of so many different initiatives and data programs and uh, things like that. And he's so politically connected. So he also... Believes that the God and Bible oppose progressive income taxes and, and capital gains taxes. He thinks those are unbiblical, and he opposes minimum wage laws. And he also, um, you know, is very much like Dronger in this sort of idea that you know the state sh- the state or the government shouldn't be providing direct aid and assistance, but it's really that um, the churches that that can be doing this. Although he's got nothing against churches taking state money, right?
0: What do uh, people in the religious right right, like Drollinger say to those who invoke being Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, or atheists as as a personal liberty?
1: You know, there will always be, interestingly, some number of Jews or Muslims or, um, you know, other folks of other religion who claim to derive some benefit from some of the initiatives that Christian nationalists want, such as public funding of houses of worship you know, uh, when, after there's a disaster you know, or um, taking money for vouchers that they can use for their, voucher money that they can use for their religious schools. But really they serve as strategic cover for a movement that does not believe in pluralism and is seeking to establish a hierarchy of rights
0: so I mean, if you look at parochial schools, of, yes, but not yeshivas.
1: You know, these yeshivas might say, oh, this is great. You know, we want money for our for our schools, too. But um, Christian nationalists know very well that really what they want is to be, you know, for people of a certain variety of religion, which is conservative religion. And, yes, of course, they'll tolerate some number of, you know, ultra-conservative Jews, et cetera, to, um, to drive benefit from this, too. But this is really a privileging of a certain kind of religion, sort of ultra-conservative religion, over everybody else. And I can give you a really specific example. Um, if you, you know, if if, if you go into a, a CVS, say, and you want to fill your prescription for birth control pills, because it's your sincerely held religious belief and your sincerely held conscience that you have a right to exercise the right to. Uh, you know, decide when to have a baby and, you know, economic uh, futures for your family, etc. The, if there's a, a a guy who's like filling your prescription and says, I don't believe in birth control, his rights are going to violate yours. Does that make sense? Mm. Like your religious conscience has been overruled in that instance. It's the same thing in Catholic hospitals, which do take public money, by the way, and serve an incredibly pluralistic um, public and also higher pluralistic staff, but in hospitals, certain procedures that have been identified by the Catholic Church as abortion or um, uh, are not per- allowed to be performed because they think that this is a violation of their religious beliefs. So, if you are, say, a pregnant woman experiencing a miscarriage in a you know in a, a Catholic hospital, or you go in there and you really want to get um, your tubes tied after you deliver a baby they won't do it because it's against their uh, they call them ethical and religious directives but in that instance the religious rights of the of the folks who are determining those ethical and religious directives which in this case is the you know conference of catholic bishops their religious rights are violating your religious rights as a patient and if you're a doctor who wants to treat people according to best practices rather than religious ideology your conscience is being violated by those ethical directives. So this really isn't religious freedom for all. This is really religious freedom for a certain variety of religion.
0: I'm speaking to Catherine Stewart. Her book, The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, is published by Bloomsbury. This is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI 99.5 FM. How have the courts decided in those cases... That you've been describing,
1: well, because under the now Trump the Supreme
0: Court is about to uh, look at another uh, challenge to Roe v. Wade.
1: Right, I, I would fully expect, you know, given the makeup of the court, to see these types of religious rights of of everybody else, a true idea of religious freedom, um, uh, degraded further.
0: How close did Margaret Atwood get to describing the America? of uh, these people's imagination in her book, The Handmaid's Tale. Huh.
1: That's very interesting when you talk about The Handmaid's Tale. It's, it's it's uh, you know, I think, you know, we're definitely not there yet. But I do want to say that, you know, issues around sexuality are clearly being used and channeled for political purposes in this movement. And this is what conservative movements do around the world. And I think she was reflecting in her book, I mean, I'm looking at the homophobic policies in Russia, but you know, all of these religious national, nationalist movements are really effective at um, channeling sexual anxieties. They they actively cultivate them. Now, I want to let's look at the trans bathroom issue as a case in point. It's a super marginal issue, and it's not coming from the grassroots, but conservative leaders have turned it into a defining issue of our time. And their concern really doesn't have to do with bathrooms or the prevention of sexual harassment or sexual assault that largely doesn't take place in women's bathrooms in public buildings. I mean, it might have happened on a couple of occasions, but this is not where sexual harassment is taking place. Uh, you know, sexual assault is rampant outside of <laughs> women's bathrooms in public buildings. You know, walking down the street, or I'm looking at Fox News. If you look at the right-wing TV propaganda networks, you see that there's been a ton of sexual harassment in those places. But if the right was concerned about sexual assault of girls at at schools, they would focus on sexism. They would focus on, you know, issues where this is places where this is really happening. But instead, They're focusing on transgender people using the bathrooms that they want to use, and issues like that as a way of provoking a set of sexual anxieties that they can then use to channel votes to their side. It's really all about the vote.
0: You mentioned earlier an anti-science bias here, uh, especially in things like uh, their alliance with the fossil fuel industries. Do uh, Christian nationalists deny the climate is
1: changing? Many of them do. In fact, a, a, a group that I wrote about in my book, it shows up in several different places. It's called the Cornwall Alliance. And it's um, a kind of climate denial organization. They um, they uh, produced a, a set of what they called educational tool, tools for school children. Uh, and it had the, the the words Green Dragon in it. They sort of meaning like the sort of environmental Satan. You know, when they talk about the green dragon, they've actually sort of identified environmentalism as um, false theology at best and satanic at worst. And so here's a really interesting place that initiative shows up. The movement knows that pastors drive votes, so they give all of these conservative pastors these very sophisticated tools to help them turn out the vote for right-wing candidates. And one of those tools is called a Culture Impact Team Manual, and it has all of these resources that are intended to communicate to voters, to congregants, the issues they should use to turn out the vote. Well, one of the resources in the Culture Impact Team Manual is the Cornwall Alliance. This is the only resource they mention when they talk about environmentalism. So basically they're trying to get their congregants to not worry about environmental policy and not worry about environmentalism, because they know that right-wing politicians aren't largely concerned with that kind of thing, and they, you know, they tend to have a pro-corporate, low environmental regulation, low business regulation uh, stance. And it's really democratic politicians that care about, you know, environmental um, environmental science and uh, promoting environmental policies.
0: We've met, you mentioned at the beginning you wanted you had some thoughts about how they've addressed the issue of coronavirus or. Have they been addressing that issue?
1: Well, th- you know, it's really astonishing is that if you look at an, uh, a group like Right Wing Watch, it's a, a platform that does a lot of research into the religious right. A lot of right wing churches are still megachurches are still holding services in the midst mm-hmm. of this coronavirus. And I think that that's a reflection of this anti-science culture that rejects the evidence of science and rejects critical thinking. We have, just,
0: we have just a couple of minutes left, and I want to address one other thing. Um, uh, as a result of the uh, enormous number of judicial appointments, uh, has the religious right become entrenched in American politics for decades to come? And it, is its political clout going to outlast the Trump administration no matter who's elected next year?
1: The religious, This movement long preceded Trump, and it will long outlast him. But I do see a lot of hope. Um, there is so much more political activism among progressives and liberals and the left, or, you know whatever distinctions you want to uh, you draw. I'm seeing so much more political activism on the left than I did even you know four or five years ago. I think people are starting to get it. I don't think we can meet our challenges as a country until we really understand what they are, and I think people are really st- starting to understand the threat that this movement represents, and they're starting to really investigate how it works. The right unifies when necessary, and I think people on the left understand the need for unity in the face of this grave threat to our democracy.
0: Yeah, but no matter who's elected, uh, he or she is going to inherit all the judges who uh, we've just uh, seen put into office during this administration.
1: Yes. but Let's remember that the right um, really started uh, at a time where they felt like they were losing in the courts. And over time, they took the steps that were necessary to change the situation. And they were very strategic about the courts. They very slowly and carefully brought the right cases to the right courts and refrained from bringing the wrong cases to the wrong courts. And over time is really how they kind of gamed the system – there is no reason why the Left can't be, or the liberals, progressives can't be as strategic and careful and long range in our thinking. You know it's it's really about unity. It's about strategy, and uh, you know it's about arming yourself with a mindset of um a long distance runner. <laughs>
0: Catherine Stewart has written for a number of different publications. Her her previous book was The Good News Club. She is also, in 2014, named Person of the Year by National Civil Liberties Group, Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Her book, The Power Worshippers, uh, is published by Bloomsbury. Thank you so much for being on our show today.
1: It's such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for having me.
0: And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to Hugh Sansom, who produced this segment. Uh, if you're new to our program, you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to check out Leonard It, at Large on Facebook and Twitter and our website, Pate at Large.com, where you can find links to all of our past shows. Tomorrow, Mike Jacarino will discuss his book about the war between the Post and the News, America's last great newspaper war, The Death of Print in a... To tabloid town, hope you tune in. New